0: Today we're reading Galatians chapters 4 through 6. This is the new King James version of the podcast. The King James version is also available. We see in chapter 4 that we are heirs of God, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." Paul ended Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29 with this statement. He said, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In chapter 4, he carries this analogy forward to show that we are heirs of God by the process of adoption made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. He'd shown back in chapter 3 verse 16 that Abraham's seed in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, included those who would come to Christ by faith, including Gentiles. While our physical lineage may not be Jewish, our spiritual heritage goes back to Abraham as adoptees. And that's because of and through Jesus Christ. In other words, those under the law, well, they're servants to the law. But those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior, they are regarded as sons. So here it is. We go from servants to sons of God upon receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. The analogy used by Paul in verses 1 and 2 has its roots in antiquity, but he's not specific to denote whether he's referencing Jewish, Greek, or Roman culture here. In rabbinical writings, we're told that Jewish boys embraced the law as men shortly after the twelfth birthday— although the Old Testament majority age was 20. In Greek culture, 18 was the age of manhood, while the time was apparently set by the father in Roman culture. No matter which culture paradigm Paul's referencing here, the picture's the same. In all three cultures, the son was treated as a servant until that point in time when he was treated as an heir. Now, the big news here is in verses 4 and 5, where we see the process whereby God redeemed us to make us heirs. We see that uh, it says in verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, it's uncertain how prophetic Paul meant this to be here. The fact is Jesus came exactly at that prophetic moment that complied with Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Then he says God sent forth his son. Therefore, Paul's specifying the deity of Jesus born of a woman. He's specifying the humanity of Jesus born under the law There he's specifying the legal requirements of the law which were satisfied by Jesus to redeem those who were under the law. Now, here's the connection to the analogy of verses 1 and 2. Spiritually, under the law is likened to one being a child under tutors and governors. And then finally, he says that we might receive the adoption as sons. Salvation in Jesus Christ makes the believer one of the sons of the adoption. Verse 5 and an heir of God through Jesus Christ, which we see in verse seven. It's important to distinguish here between the usage of pronouns as Paul's writing. all the way back to Galatians chapter two fifteen, we see Paul drawing a contrast between the Jewish experience prior to salvation as opposed to that of the Gentiles. While the Jewish people were regarded as the children of God, that was a national relationship. It actually had nothing to do with individual salvation. The the under-the-law experience of verses 1 through 5 here identifies the Jewish experience. That is until the redemption from under-the-law in verse 5 and the subsequent new relationship to God called the adoption as sons. The pronoun turns from we to you in verse 6. That's where Paul makes the point that Gentiles are also now made part of God's family the same way as Jews, by adoption. Thus, we Gentiles likewise become an heir of God through Christ. Now, let's not overlook the miracle, verse 6. When one receives Christ as his Savior, notice Paul says that God sends the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. Make no mistake about it, this is a direct reference to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. After salvation, God dwells in believers. Our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit, a point that Paul also emphasized in 1 Corinthians 3.16. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer at salvation, a fact of Scripture. Read Romans 8.9 and 1 Corinthians 12.13 to see exactly what I mean. Don't listen to those Judaizers. That's the theme of verses 8-20 through 20 of chapter 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first— And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them." But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Well, Paul takes a little time here to address the big issue, the nagging teaching of those Judaizers. Now look, If you're saved by faith, you're kept by faith also. Don't let those rascal false teachers, those Judaizers, bring you under the law of Moses. Notice the criticism of the practice of observing the Jewish Sabbath and high days, the special Sabbaths in verse 10. These apparently were being imposed by the Judaizers on these primarily Jewish believers. Paul emphasizes a real danger in not understanding the finished work of Christ on the cross and continuing in these observances of these days as well as the adherence to other Jewish laws. He indicates the false motives of the Judaizers, also known as legalizers, in verse 17. Their goal was to win the Galatians over at the exclusion of Paul. Recognizing that Paul's teaching of grace was incompatible with their teaching of submitting to the law of Moses after salvation, they sought to turn the Gentiles against Paul and the true message of grace. So Paul's question in verse 9 is this. You were saved from your impotent, calls them weak and beggarly elements, superstitions and religious practices unable to save. Are you now going to subscribe to another set of such rules and regulations? So as Paul wasted his time on these Galatians, having given them the gospel of grace only to have it displaced by a law-grace hybrid teaching by these Judaizers, well, that's the big question of verse 11. In expressing his concern for them, Paul encourages them in verse 12, Brethren, he says, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. We simply don't have enough in that verse to conclusively decide what exactly Paul means by that statement. From context, he seems to be implying that they need to be free from the law of Moses, just as he is free from the law of Moses. Well, Paul makes reference to an eye ailment that he had in verses 13 through 15. This ailment is undoubtedly the same infirmity that he spoke of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's when he asked the Lord to remove it from him and was probably the result of the stoning that he received in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. Though obvious even to the casual reader, some today deny that Paul's physical infirmity was a physical ailment involving his eyesight. There's no question that God had declined to heal Paul of his eye ailment. He says so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. So, does God heal today? Well, I'm convinced that He does. Every time? Well, no, not every time. Not today, nor in Paul's day. It's scripturally advisable to pray with people regarding their illnesses. The wisdom of James one five should be sought regarding the illness. James five says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's wrong to teach a doctrine that God wants to heal of every physical infirmity, but cannot if they can't muster up enough faith to claim that miracle of healing. I mean, that's just a bad doctrine. Wisdom, 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 wisdom. The wisdom of James 1.5 is the key to healing and any other adversity in one's life. Pray for wisdom. We see the battle lines clearly drawn in verses 16 through 20 between these false Judaizing teachers and the Apostle Paul. Paul asks in verse 16, he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That verse seems to make clear that Paul had been negatively portrayed to these Galatians as an enemy by these Judaizers because of his grace alone salvation message. Well, there you have it. Those who teach that favor before God can only be attained through a combination of grace and works. They are the enemies of those who believe the simplicity of the gospel message alone. Paul expresses disappointment in these Galatians for being affected by those Judaizers. Goes so far as to say in verse 20, he says, I have doubts about you. He is amazed that they could have been so confused by this false teaching after the clarity with which he had taught them previously. In verses 21 to 31, we have an allegory. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children." But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, you'll recall that Hagar was Sarah's servant. That was Abraham's wife, Sarah. When Abraham and Sarah doubted God, Sarah gave Abraham an heir through Hagar and Ishmael was born. He was not heir to the promises of God that specifically were for Isaac, the biological son of Abraham and Sarah. So Isaac was the son of promise according to Genesis chapter 17 verses 16 through 19. Paul here spins an allegory which is a little difficult to follow, but here's the bottom line on the allegory. Grace is to law as Isaac is to Ishmael. In other words, just as Isaac was Abraham's heir to the Abrahamic covenant, so are those who are saved and kept by grace heirs of the promise of the atonement that Jesus provided for us on the cross. Paul's emphasizing that they are separate and distinct using an allegory between Isaac and Ishmael based upon Genesis chapter 16 to do so. In his analogy, Paul goes prophetic to make an analogy within his analogy, that of the future glory of Jerusalem as it becomes the governmental seat over all the earth. He introduces that allegory in verses 25 through 27, and in the process quotes Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, which he does in verse 27 to strengthen his point. So the allegory being stated, here it is in Paul's conclusions. Believers are the children of promise, just as Isaac was the child of promise, in verse 28. And then secondly, just as Ishmael's descendants persecuted Isaac's descendants, so do those Judaizers persecute the salvation by grace alone people, that's in verse 29. The remedies in verse 30, disassociate from the Judaizers, just as Abraham disassociated from Hagar and Ishmael at sarah's strong strong request in genesis chapter 21 verse 10 so there's paul's conclusion in verse 31 so then brethren we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free paul's doctrine is that of teaching the fulfillment of the promise given to abraham by faith through abraham's seed jesus christ the judaizers are stuck in the law of moses and they don't understand the concept of salvation by grace In chapter 5, here's the question, are you free or are you not free? Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another." For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The therefore of verse 1 ties to the allegory of chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Grace is freedom, law is bondage. That's what we learn from the allegory. Don't get caught up in the law. Now, let's get specific here. Verses 2 and 3 reflect the sentiment of those Judaizers who brought about the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The issue was framed there in chapter 15, verse 1, where we find that these Judaizers were teaching this, and says there that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision is an integral part of the law of Moses. It's the very token of the Mosaic covenant. There were leaders in the church in Jerusalem who believed that ceremonial circumcision for Gentiles after salvation, they believed it was absolutely necessary. That event in Acts chapter 15 happened about the same time that Paul hears writing Galatians. Paul thought it to be an outrageous proposition to require Gentiles to be made subject to the Jewish law. As a matter of fact, the outcome of the Jerusalem council released Gentile believers from the provisions of the law of Moses altogether. The question of verse 2 is simple here. Are you going to trust the law of Moses or are you going to trust grace for salvation? Circumcision as a part of the process of getting saved, well, that Invalidates grace and makes one subject to the law of Moses instead. That's Paul's point in verse 3. Now, if somehow you think that keeping the law justifies, then you're just wrong. It never justifies. That's the key to verse 4. Who has fallen from grace in that verse? Well, the answer is those who think they are justified by the law, which, by the way, is an impossible task. You can't be justified by the law. Only grace through faith justifies. Verse 4 does not say fallen from salvation. It says fallen from grace. These are people who rejected grace in lieu of law-keeping, people who never got saved in the first place because they fell away from the grace that could save them, choosing law instead. Some folks who believe you can lose your salvation pulled this verse out of context to attempt to prove such. So do we in the Galatians flaunt our release from the Old Testament law in front of other people? Well, verse 13 says that victorious believers are conscious of their testimony, just as Paul said regarding this issue in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 and 33. Here's what he said there. He said, "...give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved." Then we have two faith verses, verses 5 and 6. Here's what they say. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. The Greek noun for hope there is peace, Literally, it means confident expectation. Paul is certain that our righteousness comes about by faith, the faith of verse 5 and not law or the circumcision that we see in verse 6. A byproduct of salvation by grace is one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. That's love, which he also mentions in verse 6. Paul will accentuate that point when we get down to verses 22 and 23. In verse 7, Paul asks of them, how would y'all get off track? He points out in verse 8 that this false doctrine some have embraced there is not after God, In other words, not after, as he says, him who calls you. And then a simple statement about leaven, meaning yeast, in verse 9. It grows and grows, just like when a little bit of false doctrine is injected in among members of a congregation. In verse 10, he suggests that they identify the false teachers among themselves and submit them for judgment. Now, hold on to your hat. Paul has an extreme word with a hint of sarcasm here. For those people who refuse to heed the council's decree of Acts chapter 15, and for those people, by the way, who still teach the necessity of Gentile ritual circumcision, here's what he says in verse 12. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. The Greek word for cut off there is apokopto. Literally, Paul is saying that those Judaizers teaching this false doctrine deserve castration i mean why stop with the foreskin if some is good more is better right ouch then in verse 13 paul turns the discussion to the issue of the correct non-abusive use of liberty as in the freedom from the law of moses paul combats the notion that when one is not subject to the law of moses he has a tendency to act lawlessly run wild so to speak then he sums up the law of Moses with regard to human interaction when he declares in verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He undoubtedly had in mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 40. That's when the law was boiled down to just two action items. Number 1, love for God, number 2, love for one another. The warning of verse 15 causes us to think that there was some significant friction there as a result of this false doctrine being taught, even perhaps mean-spirited. So here's the key to Christian living, located here in verses 16 to 26 of chapter 5. Verse 16, "'I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh.'" "'drunkenness, revelries, and the like, "'of which I tell you beforehand, "'just as I also told you in time past, "'that those who practice such things "'will not inherit the kingdom of God. "'But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, "'long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, "'gentleness, self-control. "'Against such there is no law. "'And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh "'with its passions and desires.' If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, if you've heard me preach, you know I just wear these verses out. I do so because herein lies the key to the victorious Christian life. Verses 16 through 18 describe a battle that takes place within believers between the old nature and the Holy Spirit. There's a misunderstanding among some Christians that once we are saved, we are no longer Plagued by a sin nature. Of course, that's not true, and Paul adequately defines the struggle that takes place within each believer in these three verses between the Holy Spirit and that old carnal nature of man. Each of these influences exists to some degree within every believer. Which is stronger? Is it the carnal nature, the flesh, or is it the Holy Spirit? These verses kick off a full discussion of Holy Spirit leadership in the believer and how a believer can be certain to be controlled by the Spirit. He concludes in verse 18 by saying, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In verses 19 to 21, we saw a long list of indications that a person is being controlled by that sinful nature. And it's a little bit of a technical discussion with some Greek words stuck in there, probably not conducive to listening as you're driving or or, or walking or running, whatever you're doing, so... I'll let you just read those and study those in print, but the works of the flesh are located in the verses 19 to 21. Now, verse 21, though, at the end of it, has some folks kind of confused. Here's the bottom line on that verse. When believers rebel against God by responding to the sinful nature rather than the Holy Spirit, God's chastening intervenes. That chastening is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 28 to 32. This is the safeguard that ensures that believers don't practice those rebellious activities of verses 19 to 21. And by the way, we are talking about those who practice sin without physical consequence from God in this passage, when Paul says of them, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the part that confuses a lot of people, especially those who understand that salvation is a permanent relationship with God. Here, the Greek verb for practice is proso, and it's a present active participle in the text. That's the conjugation of the Greek verb. Used in that way, it refers to a continual practice. Coupled with the clear doctrine of chastisement of believers for sin, that means that only lost people were able to practice as a lifestyle these actions of verses 19 to 21 without the intervening hand of God. This chastisement for sin is not to be mistaken with trial from God. If you'd like more information regarding trial versus chastisement, I've written an article with that very title. You'll find it by clicking on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today or looking under the topic section. Then there's a good list, a good list found in verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the spirit list. These nine attributes are the indicators that a person is being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice it doesn't say fruits. It says fruit. In other words, when describing a Holy Spirit-led Christian, one should be able to use all nine of these attributes to do so. Just as an apple has certain distinctive characteristics, so does a believer. And here are those characteristics. Now, again, there's a word study here. So I'm just going to read you the characteristics as we find them in verses 22 and 23. A believer looks like this. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now let me say it again. When a believer is controlled and led by the Holy Spirit, here's what he looks like, and that's in verses 22 and 23, those nine attributes that I just read. Paul concludes in verses 24 and 25 by emphasizing that if a believer wants to be pleasing to God and experience victory, then spirit-led living, there's your key. In other words, Holy Spirit leadership in a believer keeps under subjection the lusts of one's flesh. Verse 25 emphasizes that when we are led by the Holy Spirit, a walk or a lifestyle will reflect it by demonstrating the attributes found in verses 22 and 23. So how does a person become spirit-led? Well, it's easy, really. I call it good spiritual hygiene, comprised of four practices in which all believers should be involved. In other words, number 1, spend daily consistent time in God's word. Read it every day. Get in God's word every day. Everyday spend some time in prayer. Number three, on a regular basis, consistently fellowship with the believers. Church a good place for that. And fourthly, share one's faith by becoming involved in some aspect of ministry. When you do those four things, that's called sowing to the Spirit. Well, let me go on. These activities feed the spiritual man and make us strong believers living in victory. Try it. You'll like it. Then there's one final allusion to the friction there in Galatians, verse 26, where he mentions vainglory, provoking one another, and envying one another. Those are the opposite attributes from those found in verses 22 and 23. When we get down to Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 in a few moments, Paul's going to present the concept of sowing to the Spirit. This practice of good spiritual hygiene, well, that's the equivalent to sowing to the Spirit. If you want to be led with the Holy Spirit, you'll need to sow to the Spirit, as in, practice good spiritual hygiene. We come to chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, where we talk about bearing one another's burdens. Verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. These are good verses demonstrating the responsibility that believers have to one another. When one stumbles within the body of Christ, others should help identify the problem and then assist in the restoration process. Most folks today think that it's best just to mind one's own business. They're wrong about that, by the way. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we do have a spiritual responsibility to help one another along in victorious Christian living. And that isn't always compatible with the world's recommendation of just minding your own business. These five verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, well, these are mandates to believers to assist fellow struggling believers when they have spiritual difficulties as, as you would for a family member in crisis. Let's look at these verses more closely. Verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, the word for trespass there, translated fault in the King James Version, is periptoma, which is usually translated trespass and is also elsewhere translated as trespass, offense, or sin. Paul just listed the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 5. That's undoubtedly what is in view here. Then he says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Those who are spiritual are defined in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 5. Those are Christians led by the Holy Spirit. Then he says, "...considering yourself lest you also be tempted." Warning. Exercise extreme caution when ministering to those engaged in the sins of chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. You need to prevent against being adversely spiritually affected yourself." Then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The spiritual welfare of other believers is every spiritually-minded believer's business. The law of Christ was defined by Paul in chapter 5, verse 14. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, is the next phrase there. And then it says, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. This verse speaks of the minister to the one overtaken in a fault. He needs to be one who is proven to be spiritually strong for this ministry of bearing another's burdens. And then finally, for each one shall bear his own load. The minister must demonstrate his ability to stand firm upon godly principles as he bears the burdens of this service. Now, some get a little confused between two statements here. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then verse 5 says, for each one shall bear his own load, or the King James says, bear his own burden. Actually, a transition has taken place in those verses from discussing the burden of sin, the fault, in verses 1 and 2, To discussing the ministry of believers, or shall we call it the load or burden of service of believers in verses 3 through 5. Each believer needs to find his place of service within the body of Christ. That's the load or burden that one must bear alone. Then we have some verses on giving in verses uh, 6 through 10 here. Verse 6, "...let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches." Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith." Where do you invest your resources? Well, here are Paul's instructions for these Galatian believers. Paul encourages them to provide for the needs of those who provide them with spiritual training when he says in verse 6, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Here's what he's saying. If you're being fed by a ministry, support it with your financial resources. Paul continues his discussion on giving by addressing giving for the needs of other believers. Paul is telling the people that they should be generous with others instead of just judging them. How many times have you heard someone say, You reap what you sow. Well, they didn't make that up. That's Bible. That's right here out of verse 7. In verse 8, Paul distinguishes between sowing to corruption or to everlasting life. The reference here is that selfish deeds have rewards that do not last into eternity like those unselfishly sown with eternity in mind. Paul uses that same word, corruption, to describe our corruptible bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 42 and 50 of that chapter. He's referring to the judgment seat of Christ scenario of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Not only so, but sowing and reaping, that analogy is used here as well in verse 9, where it's suggested that as we keep ministering, others will minister to us. Likewise, Paul says in verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's important for us not to miss the sowing-reaping analogy of these verses. The phrase sows to the spirit of verse 8 is specifically addressing ingesting the word of God. Some might misunderstand that giving money to teachers of the word of God is the sowing. No, that's not it. We are encouraged to support them so that they can be instrumental in sowing the Word of God to our spiritual man. So indirectly, sort of. We need the Word of God to grow spiritually, and that's one component of good spiritual hygiene, which we talked about earlier. And then in verses 11 through 18, we have some final warnings and a benediction. Verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh... These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation." As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In verse 11, it's just not clear whether Paul's talking about the length of his letter written without the assistance of a transcriber, or perhaps he's talking about the size of the letters that he actually wrote, meaning uh, perhaps a reference to his eye problem. Scholars disagree, and I'm good with either. What about these Judaizers? Why do they do what they do? Preach that Judaizing message. Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that they do it because, well, they're conformist. They don't want to rock the ecclesiastical boat, so to speak. He goes even further in verse 13 to point out that they don't practice what they preach. They don't adhere to the whole law of Moses either. They're just looking for an attaboy those kind of attaboy points for getting you to comply with their false doctrine. And in verse 13, he says it like this, that they may boast in your flesh. In verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, his whole life is wrapped up in ministry. That's all that motivates him. He's put away worldly ambitions and desires. Verse 15 is clear. Whether one is ritually circumcised or not is simply not an issue for these believers. In verse 16, he says, in essence, heed this word and live in peace. Paul validates his ministry and teaching in verse 17 when he says this, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Finally, in verse 18, not just a bye-bye, but a parting expression that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That closing statement flies in the face of the teaching of those Judaizers about whose false teaching Paul wrote this very letter. In parting, Paul once again warns against those Judaizers who are teaching one has to be circumcised to be accepted with God. He points out that even they don't keep the entire law. Incidentally, Paul frequently refers to observant Jews as the circumcision in his writings. Just don't let those Judaizers, those people that insist you got to be circumcised, don't let them snooker you into doing that which is absolutely meaningless. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www. BibleTrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.